Philippians 3, 7 through 11. But whatever gain I had, I counted as lost for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. To the book of Mark, chapter 10, 17 through 31. That's Mark 10, 17 to 31. Well, as you're returning there, I I guess these are probably things that I should have said earlier, but uh, our team has done a great job here letting you know, so this isn't new information to anybody, but I just want to take a moment, even from, from the pulpit, just take a second to say, we have two really important things happening. One is really, really exciting. The other, maybe not so exciting, but still important in the next two Sundays. So this afternoon, the exciting thing, we've already talked about it, we just prayed about it, and I'll say it again, is our baptism service. And I just want to encourage, particularly for those of you who are members of our church, um, every time we baptize, baptize somebody, to remember that that ordinance is a part of what it means to be a church. A part of a good, robust, biblical definition of a church is that when we baptize somebody, we are saying they're being baptized into our family, that they're coming along with us. That's why uh, Eden's already been through the membership class. I don't mean to call you out. Hopefully we'll baptize more people together. But they'll go through membership class and baptism conversations and all those kinds of things because we're not just baptizing people and then saying, like, and now you're orphaned to go and figure out how to follow Jesus all by yourself. That's just not what we would do ever. We baptize people. We baptize them into Christ. And in doing that, they're baptized into a particular local body of Christians. And we are saying to those people, you are ours and we are yours. And so I really hope that you will do all you can to be there this afternoon uh, for that baptism service. And even afterwards, we're planning to maybe go to Culver's and get some ice cream and food and good times and things like that. And so it's not very far away at all, and we can do that. And while we're church is small, we can do things like that without overrunning Culver's. Um, we won't be able to do that kind of thing eventually, but it's a really sweet time in this, these early days of church planting where it is so small, while that sometimes there's a hardness that comes with it, there's also some sweetness. And this afternoon is a picture of that because we get to really feel that familial feel. And the other thing is next, though, next Sunday at 9.15, uh, we'll have our, uh, a members meeting here. Again, that's not nearly as exciting. Um, this particular members meeting, nothing top secret is happening, you know. So if you're not a member all the way through that process, like, you can come. We're talking about money. We're a nonprofit. That's public information anyway. So <laughs> it doesn't matter. You can come. You can hear about that. And that's, that's a good thing to come and just be informed on anyway. So we would encourage you all to be here for that. Um, we will have to vote on a couple things, but they're even super exciting. It's like, will Leland be the treasurer? Unless you really want to be the treasurer, um, I think that's going to be an easy thing to do. So that kind of thing we'll vote through and, and just start to do that. But those are important moments in our church's life 
as well. So I really want to encourage you to be here, to be a part of that. And it's a little bit of a trial run for maybe the hope of being able to start something a little earlier before church for some adult uh, and kid discipleship as as we look to the fall and what we might be able to do. So I really hope you're here at 9.15 to take part in that. All right, well, let's look back. There's the, the announcements that I really wanted just to highlight. Again, they'll be highlighted at the end of the service all over. But right now, we're going to look at Mark chapter 10, 17 through 31. Well, last week, uh, the, the passage right before this, it, it, Jesus talks about letting the little children come. And in that passage, he says, For to such belongs the kingdom of God. And we talked about last week, and if you weren't here or didn't hear it, I'll say it again. That's a really weird thing to say, that a kingdom belongs to children. While children may act like they're kings and in charge of the world, we know it's the opposite. Kids aren't in charge of anything. And Jesus is saying that the kingdom belongs to such as these. And we talked about last week, that meant to those who are dependent upon him for everything, for life itself. That's who the kingdom of God belongs to. But I want you to see the irony of what Mark and Luke are doing. In Luke's account, in Luke chapter 18, this next episode, this next story, Mark calls him a rich young man, but Luke actually calls him a rich young ruler. And what's going to happen is this rich young ruler will come to Jesus, and ultimately he'll turn away from Jesus. He will not inherit the kingdom of God, at least not in this moment. I guess we don't know the story of his, the rest of his life, but at least not in this moment. And there's this irony that's being played out in Mark and Luke. The kingdom belongs to kids, but it does not belong to a wealthy young full of potential ruler. And we want to see that irony start to play out. When we read our Bibles, we want to be careful. Sometimes we hit the zoom button uh, too hard on our interpretive lens, and we get stuck kind of in one verse, and we miss the forest for the trees. And what's really helpful, if we just zoom back every now and then, we get to see these kind of insights that the authors of the scriptures, inspired by the Holy Spirit, are giving us, this irony that's playing out between these two different episodes of the kingdom belongs to these dependent children, but it doesn't belong to this ruler. Like that, he's, They're doing that on purpose because they're really trying to highlight and say, look who the kingdom does belong to, to the humble, to the meek. And again, that has been the theme of the last few weeks. We know this theme of humility. To follow Jesus, we have to be humble. And that's what we're going to see yet again and again as we look to this rich young man, who I've already spoiled it for you, I've told you the ending, he's going to walk away disheartened and sorrowful because he has much possessions as Jesus calls him to give up everything to follow him, and he's not able to do that. And I think when we look at this particular uh, story that some of us are familiar with, maybe others are not, what usually gets highlighted is what this guy is being asked to give up. He's being asked to give up all of his riches, to sell everything and give it to the poor. What I want us to see is I think something else is actually supposed to be taking center stage in the passage. And that's not what Jesus is asking him to give up. But it's rather what Jesus is inviting him to have. See, what we want to see, what I've titled this sermon, is it's a missed opportunity. Jesus is inviting this rich young man to gain everything. He's going to tell him, if you give up this temporal stuff, you will gain eternal riches beyond your imagination. You're going to gain what he calls treasure in heaven here in this passage. And that's what we want to see, is it's not about what this man is being called to lose. It's all about what this man is being called to gain. And when we see that, we see that rightly, then I think we can start to look at our own life. What is Jesus calling me to gain through the 
giving up of my idols and my adultery, my idolatry. That's what I think is going to be happening in this passage. I think Jesus is calling him to give up an idol so that he might gain everything. And that's what's happening to him. And, and we'll, we'll get into that in a little bit. But that's where we want to see that this is a missed opportunity. Jesus is calling him to gain everything, and he just has to lose some temporal stuff to do it. Well, to do that, I'm going to go ahead and read the entire passage now, and then we'll just walk through little by little as we typically do. So picking up in verse 17, it says, And he was setting out on his journey, that's talking about Jesus, and remember, Jesus is heading towards Jerusalem to be crucified for our sins. A man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. And honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. Come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult will it be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children. Again, remember that story before. The children are coming. Jesus looks at his disciples. Children. How difficult is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but with God, but not with God, for all things are possible. Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this, in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life, but many who are first will be last and the last first. Let's pray. Father, I pray for help right now. I ask God that you would let your light shine on this text, that the Spirit would come and illuminate our hearts as we walk through this passage of Scripture and learn what it is you are saying to Redemption Hill Church this morning. God, help us be people who are willing to give up the temporal things so that we might gain everything. I ask this in your name. Amen. Well, as we look at the passage, what I want us to see first is the first missed opportunity is just that. He loses, he misses out on the opportunity to gain everything. So as we look through this, Jesus again is on his way to uh, Jerusalem. He's getting ready to die for our sin and he's making his way. That's the rest of the book of Mark. He's going to travel along there to do those things, but he's still teaching and preaching the kingdom of God and he'll even do some miracles along the way. And as he's doing this, this man runs up to him, kneels at him and says, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? 
Now, as a pastor, and I'm sure as you guys, as people who want to share their, their faith with people, this is like the softball of all questions, right? Like, ah, uh, here it is. Like, just share the gospel. Give them the four spiritual laws, the two ways to live, the three circles, like whatever it is, evangelism method you were told, you know, uh, Ray Comfort, Ten Commandments stuff, Kindle's pumping his that's what he was trained on. As a kid. Whatever it was, whatever you got trained, however you got told to share the gospel, it's like time to whip out that track, give it to him, bam. And Jesus doesn't do that. This guy comes up to him, asks the golden question, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus responds with a question. A very kind of Yoda-esque, if you've ever seen Star Wars. It, you know, it, it just, it's not what maybe I would do. And Jesus looks and says, why do you think, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And I think in some ways Jesus is, 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 is tilting his hand a little bit to this guy. He's, he's kind of showing him like, if God alone is good and you recognize that I'm good, see the connection? Who's God? Are you saying that I'm God? How close are you to understanding how to interpret? inherit eternal life. Where are you at? And I think Jesus is tilting his hand a little bit. He's asking this question, why do you call me good while at the same time still pointing back into the life of this rich young man and saying, you're calling me good. Do you think you're good? Do you think you're good enough to inherit eternal life? Because then Jesus says, you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. If you've read through the book of Exodus in your life or maybe grown up around Sunday school lessons, you're going to recognize some of those commandments, right? Even in our secular world, you might recognize some of those commandments from the Ten Commandments. These are a lot of the external kind of commands that we see. Don't, don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't do this. And the one thing he kind of adds in is do not defraud, which might be a different take on not coveting, or it's probably just the reality of rich people during this time. Rich people during our time do often get rich by defrauding the poor. And so Jesus is kind of pushing at him and saying, don't do these things, including the defrauding of the poor. Are you really a righteous person? Do you think you are good? And he looks at him and says, Teacher, all these I have I've kept from my youth. Now, I think it's easy to look at that, and we know, for those of us who are Christians, we know the answer, right? You're not supposed to say that to Jesus. You're supposed to say, I'm a sinner. I, I've not kept all the law. I'm not good enough to do this. But I think the reality that we're starting to see here is I actually think instead of thinking this guy's just really prideful, I think he's more just really ignorant. His understanding, he's not there for earlier in, in the book of Matthew, much earlier in Jesus' time. Jesus teaches on these and he talks about, you know, adultery is even looking lustfully on a woman. Murder is even just having hatred or anger towards your brother. Uh, you know, th- these kinds of things, it goes deeper than just the surface. But the Jewish teaching wasn't. Like, I think this guy could have said, like, I haven't cheated on my wife. I haven't killed anybody. I haven't, you know, I haven't defrauded anyone. I haven't. And it might be honestly, ignorantly kind of saying, like, I, I, I did it. I've done all those things. I, you know, I, my mom and dad love me. I must be honoring them. Like, we're okay. And, and those kind of things. And, and maybe his understanding just isn't really at the depth of what Jesus would see. Because what we see here is Jesus doesn't just like admonish this guy and confront him right off the bat. Jesus doesn't say, you're a liar. 
Yes, you have broken the law. He doesn't handle this guy like that. And maybe that's something we can learn from our evangelism is the reality is, is evangelism is not one size fits all. That we have to know the people that we're talking to. And Jesus, because listen to what it says. It says, and Jesus looking at him, loved him. This word that he's used is there to look. It doesn't mean just to like stare or gawk at, but it actually is the word in Greek that you'd use to maybe say like to scrutinize, to interpret, to make a judgment. Jesus looks at this guy with intention. He looks at him as the son of God and he looks into this man's heart and listen to Jesus' reaction to this guy who just is so naive and thinks he has it all together. He looked at him and he loved him. See, that's why I think, again, this isn't about what Jesus is asking him to give up. I think this is about what Jesus is asking him to gain. Because you don't look at people that you love and just kind of meanly say, like, give up everything that you have and sell it unless you think it's for their good, unless you think they have something tremendous to gain out of that. Jesus loves this man. He loves him. And as somebody who loves him, he looks at him and he says, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. See, the reality is the rich young man and me and you and every other person who's walked this earth lacks one thing. It's a relationship with Jesus Christ. It is seeing him as primary, number one, seated on the throne of our heart, the one who we owe everything to. And as Jesus looks intently into this man's heart, scrutinizing him and looking at him and out of love, I think Jesus is saying, there is something that is holding you back from seeing me as the most precious and prized thing in this world. It's your possessions. So you need to go sell all that you have. Give to the poor. And if you do this, you will have treasure in heaven. So come and follow me. That's the call that Jesus is making to this guy. He's asking him to come and follow him. In Matthew 13, 44 through 46, this is my, this is my favorite parable. Matthew 13, 44 in particular. I guess 45 and 46 kind of say the same thing, but I'm a little more blue collar, so 44 resonates with me. But I love this. It says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. I love that passage. I love it because it, it just, it, it pumps me up. It's saying like, that's what it means to follow Jesus. Following Jesus is like, you find this treasure and you say, I will give up everything so I can have more of that. That's what it looks like to follow Jesus. When you see Jesus for all that he is, you're saying, whatever it is, I'll sell it. I'll give it all up so that I might buy that field and have that treasure. That's what I want. I, I have been looking for this pearl. I've been searching through. I, I know a good pearl when I see one, and that one is worth everything. Every sale that I've ever made, every bit of money I've ever accrued, it's gone. I'm giving it up. Why? So that I might have that pearl. And that's what he's saying. I think that's what Jesus is inviting this rich young ruler into. He is saying, go sell everything you have. Give it to the poor. And then 
you will gain treasure in heaven. You'll gain everything to come and follow me. I am better than all of your wealth. So give up your wealth and come follow me. But the reality is, is this man goes and he's disheartened by the saying, and he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. That's what happens to this guy. I mean, here is the truth. If we, this may be in some modern terms for those of us who maybe aren't buying up fields or pearls. In 1997, when Amazon went public, you were able to buy Amazon stock. They were selling stock for $18 a share. Since that time, they've split their stocks a couple time, so it's, it's even harder to do the math, but even those split shares, which you would then accrue more wealth with, are now going for over $3,000 a share today. $3,164 is what Amazon stock was going for on Thursday, which means if you would have invested $500 in 1997 in Amazon when nobody understood the business model or wanted to come and jump on board with Jeff Bezos and his friends as he was packing books by himself with it, uh, and at, during their peak times, you would now gain more than a half of a million dollars. $500 would turn into over $500,000 had you invested in Amazon and stuck it out till today. Now, if you could go back in a time machine and invest in Amazon, you would be a total fool to only invest $500 in Amazon in 1997. If you had the ability to go invest in Amazon and you knew what was going to happen, what would you do? You would go back and you would liquidate everything you've ever owned. You'd be holding a garage sale. You'd be selling everything you've ever had. Your kids would be like, no, not my bike. And you're like, shh. You'll get a better bike, you know, like sell it. Just give it all away. We're giving everything away. And I'm going to go in in 1997 and I'm going to buy as much Amazon stock as I possibly can. That's what you would do because you see the surpassing value of the one you're happy to give up the other. And that's what Jesus is calling this guy to do. He's saying, look at my surpassing value. There was treasure in heaven for you. Come and follow me. All you have to do is sell everything you own and give it to the poor. Your possessions, your idolatry, hold you back from gaining everything. The story isn't about what Jesus is calling him to lose. The story is about what Jesus is calling him to gain. Now, we can very easily, the normal American thing to do when we look at this passage is, God's not calling me to do that. God's not calling me to give up all my possessions to sell things for the kingdom of God. And I want to say, this call that Jesus is making to this rich young man is actually the call that he makes to every Christian. To every Christian, Jesus has called you to gain everything. Jesus is inviting you to come follow me, and he's saying, if you do it, it's worth it. It's better than Amazon stock. Come and follow Jesus, and you will have treasure in heaven. And all it costs is your idolatry, your idols. Whatever it is that you hold up as being more beautiful, more precious, more pleasurable than Jesus, and I think for this man, it's his riches, Jesus is saying, it doesn't even compare to me. Give it up. Come and follow me. See, this is a missed opportunity. 
because he walks away disheartened by the saying, and he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. The reality is, is following Jesus does have a cost, and this rich young man is unwilling to pay it. But we need to see that the only reason why we pay the cost is if we see the value, the value of Jesus and the beauty of Jesus and all that he comes with. And in missing the opportunity, he also misses out on more. See, the great thing about the gospel is it's compounding in its goodness in our lives. It's not just salvation, which, what a gift, to not have to endure the wrath of God, which you earned, and rather get to live with God forever in eternity, but there's actually more. There's more right now and here in this life that you get to experience if you follow Jesus. And one of those things is our next point in our sermon is the opportunity to witness the impossible. This man misses out on the opportunity to witness the impossible. In verse 23, it says, And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who could be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. This rich young man had a front row seat to see God do something totally impossible, change his own heart. And he walked away, disheartened and sorrowful, because he chose his possessions over Jesus. And in that, he he then misses out. I mean, you talk about these other disciples, the amazing things that they get to do. They get to watch the impossible over and over and over and over again. It's truly, truly amazing. Jesus looks to this guy and he says, and he asks his disciples, how difficult will it be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? He doesn't ask it once, he says it twice. He's making this point. It's so difficult for the rich to enter into the kingdom of God because they have more idols. They have more things to to lose in this temporal world. In fact, it's so difficult for the rich man to enter the kingdom of God that Jesus tells him it's impossible. And he says this really outrageous thing. He says it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, if you don't know what the eye of a needle is, is it's like if you've ever sewing it's like the really really fine small part of the needle where you put the thread through right a lot of times you have to like lick the thread and then you try and then you try then you try it's hard just to get a piece of thread through there and jesus is saying it's it would be easier to stick a camel through the eye of that needle now there are two ways that people try to get around this really outrageous thing that jesus One is the word for rope in Greek actually just has one letter difference than the word for camel in Greek. And so they're saying, well, he's not saying camel, he's just saying rope, to which we would say, it's still a rope. Like, it still doesn't fit through the eye of a needle. Like, the point is still that it's impossible. And I actually think the point that Jesus is making, which is what he says later in the text, is that it's impossible other than with God. The camel makes more sense. Because the camel's more impossible. He's trying to say something that's totally weird and outrageous. He's trying to make you say, a camel through an eye of a needle? He's trying to get you to, to like imagine that and think through that. I think he really means to say, a camel through the eye of a needle. And then the other thing, and I've actually heard this. I, the only reason why I'm taking a side tangent here is because I've been taught both of these things in churches. And I just don't think they're true, and I want you to be well informed. Is that there was a city gate in Jerusalem called the needle's eye. 
Has anyone else heard this? Am I the only one? Yeah, there's some people nodding their heads. Okay. So I, I, I grew up hearing this, right? So the city gate in Jerusalem, supposedly, uh, that a camel was only big enough for a pedestrian to walk through. And so if a rich person had their camel, they'd have to take off all the stuff of the camel, they'd have to get off the camel, and then they'd have to like drag the camel, and then they could get through it. That would preach so well, right? Like the reason why those people in your life maybe taught you that, and I'm not trying to be mean to them or anything, you know, like it's okay. If you were taught that, that person's not a heretic. They, they, love, they probably love Jesus and they love you. And it's like tempting. Like I want to believe it because doesn't that just preach so well? Like, so give up your possessions and then you can follow Jesus. Like it would just, it's just so poetic. The problem is there's like zero evidence that as such as a, a gate ever existed. That teaching doesn't come about until like the ninth century, which is like 800 years after Jesus said this and like 750 years after Mark wrote this. So you're, you've had this just like massive amount of time and this is like a teaching just like shows up 700 years later in church history and people are like, hey, that works for me. And they just kind of roll with it. But there's just like zero evidence that a gate like that ever existed. And, and it just doesn't seem to be what's happening. I think the more simple thing we should do is just let the Bible interpret the Bible. And we look at the context of this particular passage, the point, the point is the impossibility. The point is that Jesus is saying, how hard is it for a rich man to get to heaven? How hard is it for a rich man to get to heaven? It's impossible. It's impossible. Impossible for a rich man to get to heaven. But not with God. But not with God. Because with God, all things are possible. See, I think the thing is, we want to look at the rich young man, and we might want to say all the ways that we're different from him, but this is actually somewhere we're the exact same. How hard is it for a man or for a woman to lay down their idols and follow Jesus? It's impossible, but not with God. With God, all things are possible. What I want to tell you is every salvation, every new birth is a miracle. It's an absolute, wonderful miracle brought by the power of God and the providence of God breathed out by God. It's impossible for somebody like us to lay down our idols and follow Jesus by ourselves. The good news is, but not with God. Jesus is pointing to these things. Remember, he's got these disciples that he's taking with him. He's saying, God can do the impossible. God can take dead men, which is going to be him, and bring them to life. And that's impossible. That's what Jesus is saying. That's what I'm inviting you into. I'm inviting you into a world of getting to see the impossible happen over and over and over again. It's impossible for you to conquer that sin that you're still struggling with right now. That sin just pulls at your flesh and it's hard, but not with God. God wants to help you grow through his people, through his word, through, through prayer, through his means of grace. God wants to help you. And he's saying, I know it feels like it's impossible. I know it feels like I'm never going to grow. And he's saying, but good news, I got good news for you. It's impossible if you do it by yourself, but not with God. If you do this with God, you can grow. You can change. That's what we want to see. We want to see that the impossible is possible with God alone. And why does that matter? Why do we care about the impossible? Well, Kendall is really good at doing magic. 
Okay, for an amateur, when I mean by amateur, I'm not trying to like call down, I just mean like he doesn't get paid to do it, right? A non-professional magician, he really is really, really good. I actually was sitting down with some guys as he was doing some stuff for a youth group last summer, and they were like, does he get paid to do this? I was like, no, he should, but he doesn't. And he was doing it for us, and he was doing all these things. And I love asking Kendall to do his magic tricks. Xavier loves it too. We're all hanging out a lot of time, and he's always asking Kendall, man, make that card do that thing again right? Why do we like to do that, X? Why do we like to do that? Because it's so fun to watch the impossible happen. And for this moment and this illusion that Kendall is doing, we're just like amazed to watch this, what seems to be impossible thing, become possible. But here's the thing about Kendall. A liar. (laughs) All right? No matter what he tells you, no matter what he does, he's lying about the trick, Okay, when he does magic tricks, the way he's able to see you do it is he lies to you. It's a sleight of hand. It's a misdirection. He, he gets you to believe something and follows you down a trail. Right? He'll tell you that. Man, it's just, it's a trick. It's a trick. None of it's real. He cannot make cars disappear or disappear. He's doing something to fool you. And we're all okay with it because it's a lot of fun. We're all okay with him to, to lie to me for that moment. Just, it's fine. Lie to me. I want to see the impossible thing happen. But what we want to see is that God calls us into a life. When you're a Christian, that you get to witness the impossible things happen over and over and over again, and it's not a trick. It's real every time. When he saves people from sin, he really saves them for all of eternity. Do you want to see the impossible happen? Do you realize what God is calling you to take part in when he asks you to be a Christian? Like even here in this life, we get to see impossible things happen. That's what we get to celebrate this afternoon. An impossible thing happened. New life was breathed into somebody through the spirit of God. And we get to do that saying, and he did the same thing for me. I was dead in my sin and my trespasses, but he made me alive, and it's impossible to bring dead men to life, but not with God. All things are possible with God. And I just want you to see, I want you to know, I want you to be excited about being a Christian. You have been invited on an awesome, awesome journey with God to see the impossible happen over and over and over again. Following Jesus allows us to witness the impossible the salvation of souls, growth in holiness, and the glory of God itself. That's what we need to take away from this passage, is that we get to witness the impossible. And as we witness the impossible over and over and over again, and I really do, we believe we get to do that, we learn that we have the experience or the opportunity to experience a better present and future. See, the final thing that we see that he misses out on when he turns away from Jesus is he misses out on the ability to experience a better present and future. Verse 28 through 31, our friend Peter speaks up again. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Oh, Pete, always looking for that affirmation. What about me? Hey, hey, hey. this guy just went away, and he seems like, the good dude, like, and you're saying he's not good enough. Like, am I good enough? We still see, it's, it's still kind of left over in the disciples, even their last question, like, who then can be saved? If rich people can't be saved, who can be, who could possibly be saved? 
And Jesus is like, the children, the dependent ones. And Peter's like, what about me? I gave up everything to follow you. And all of us, we, we gave it all up. We, we left our nets, Jesus. We left our business. We left our homes. We, we left these things. And Jesus answers so compassionately to these men. Truly, or amen. Yes, he's, 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 he's really highlighting that. I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. It is really easy to make this all about the future. But listen to what Jesus says. We will receive these things now. Now, I think there are intangible realities to this, right? If you follow Jesus, you will receive joy that is better than any joy you've ever experienced, a hundredfold. You will receive love, compassion, mercy, grace, a hundredfold. Absolutely. We know that, and we know that now. But what about things like houses? If I follow Jesus and I sell my house and give it to the poor, am I going to get a hundred houses? What does it look like to get more brothers? I don't want any more brothers. My dad remarried, and I got three stepbrothers with it. They're great, but good. There's a lot of traveling when you have three stepbrothers. A lot of weddings to go to. There's a, I don't know. I could take a hundred more. What is Jesus asking to? Sisters? Mothers? I don't know. Good. I mean, a hundred moms, right? What is Jesus saying? Well, I think there is some real- realness to this. I think as we look, and what does it mean for a hundred houses, I, I think we look through and we see there that oikos, the Greek word, is, is talking about families and households. You have the opportunity to go and invite other people to follow Jesus, and everyone that comes is another household. And what does Jesus said? The kingdom belongs to you. You get to be co-heir with him, and you get to invite these people in with you. Jesus is saying, you follow me, you're going to see people come to know Jesus. Families are going to be changed because we're going to see the impossible happen. Brothers and sisters, that's what he's talking about. People who come to know Christ, the church, they will become your new family. You're going to get spiritual mothers and spiritual fathers, and you'll get more than you could ever bargain for. They'll love you and they'll disciple you and bring you along in your faith. You're not alone when you come into this. God is saving you, and he's saving you into a family. New brothers, new sisters, new mothers, new fathers. And even we talk about lambs, lands, We pray every Sunday for God to take over lands. We pray every week for the mission of God to go throughout all of this world, and we know, and we just sang it. No matter how many trials on every side, we know the outcome is secure. Christ will have the price for which he died, the inheritance of what? Nations. That's right. Every tribe, nation, tongue, will be gathered around the throne singing worthy is the lamb who is slain all blessing and glory and honor belongs to our God he is saying you will have that and you get to take part in that not in the future today the church gets to do that now when you sit in that time of prayer and I know it's hard I've got a kid I'm like wrangling him he's just kissing all of her sister but listen you're going to war in that moment you're taking nations in that moment through Christ, and the outcome is secure. We get to do that. We come and we pray, and we don't just do that as something to put in the service. We're doing it because we're saying, we know that God is answering these prayers. But today, the nations, 
got lifted up to the throne of glory by our prayers. And as that happened, Jesus, our intercessor, sat there and made beautiful the prayers of broken saints and lifted him before the Father so that his ministry might be blessed throughout a, a country on the brink of war. That's what God invites you into today. A better life now. Not an easier life. Not even close. Because what he also tells us is not only we get this, he continues on. Now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions. We'll we'll face persecution. We'll face trouble in this life. Jesus doesn't make life easier, but he does make it better. See, even our persecutions are for our good. I remember after my mom, my mom died in 2015 from cancer, and she battled cancer for about 11 years, so it was a pretty long process in my family's life and in our story as we faced these difficulties, these trials on every side. And I remember sitting in a car with my dad after that had happened, after she had passed away, and he was telling me how people would say things to him like, they hate cancer, they hate all these bad things, and all this stuff. And he understood where they were coming from. But I will never forget this as my dad looked at me and said, Josh, we saw God do amazing things through your mom's cancer. We got to share the gospel with people we never even met before because they would want to call and ask us, how are you guys doing this? How are you getting through this? And the first thing every time my mom was able to say, my relationship with Jesus. He said, Josh, we got to do amazing things and see God do these incredible things. He said, I watched my children follow God into the ministry. My sister is another person that we pray for. We are here. We're giving up these. Why are we doing that? And my dad told me, he said, Josh, if this is what God had planned for our family, I would take cancer over and over and over again because this is so much better than anything we could have imagined. And I was astonished at that. This was fresh right after. And he is telling me about extreme grief that he had felt in this time. But we want to see that even in our persecutions, God is using it for his glory and our good. Every single time. Psalm 13 says this. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider me, answer me. Oh God, light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. Those words, the psalmist is distraught, forsaken, dejected, depressed, to the point of the sleep of death. And he's asking, God, how long, how long must I suffer? But listen to how he ends the psalm with no indication that the pain is over. No indication whatsoever that the trial has has ceased. Listen to how he ends the psalm. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. 
My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Even in the trial, he rejoices because even with the persecutions, Jesus is promising a better today. He doesn't make life easier, but he does make it better. We can trust in the steadfast love of God and rejoice in our salvation, sing in the midst of difficulty. Why? Because we know the outcome is secure. He has dealt bountifully with me. He has dealt so bountifully. And then Jesus finishes with a theme that has been consistent throughout these chapters as he tells them, but many who are first will be last and the last first. It's a theme that's been working all the way through Mark 9 and now 10. The first, last, the last shall be first. And we're going to see it's going to culminate in probably the most popular verse in the book of Mark, Mark 10, 45. As Jesus says that he did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. What an amazing thing that he will say, but it's pushing that way. Jesus has been showing them, look, the children, let them come to me. I don't care if they bring down my status. Actually, I'm going to elevate their status instead. This rich young man comes, that'd be a great guy to have on our team, but I'm going to tell him, I have to be first. I have to be number one. And in your life, young man, that means you need to sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And then you will gain treasure in heaven and you will come and follow me. What we need to see, what we need to believe is this, is that life is better with Jesus. It is better with Jesus. And not just now, but yes, for eternity too. He's promising you eternal life to reign and rule with him forever. And what an amazing and beautiful thing that we see. As I wrap up this morning, what I want us to see is this, is that the rich young ruler is a warning. It's a warning of a missed opportunity. We can look at this young man who has resources and wealth, connections, and we see all the potential in him. But because he is not willing to be last, sell all that he has and follow Jesus, he misses out on everything. He misses out on the opportunity and ultimately, he's going to miss out on treasure in heaven. But I want to close with this. That treasure in heaven is not silver and gold. The treasure in heaven is a person. It is Jesus himself. That's what he invites this guy into. To a relationship with the God of the universe. The triune, amazing God. And that's what heaven is all about. When we all get to heaven, oh, what a day of rejoicing that will be, as the old hymn says. Since we all see Jesus, we will sing and shout the victory. The best part about heaven will be God. It's the best part. It's not the streets of gold. It's not the mansion he's building for you. He's not, and that's some pretty cool stuff. And we get to enjoy really cool things. It's not the feast that he's saying that he's going to prepare for us. The best part is fellowship with God. It's a place where there's no sun because God is so close. He is like the sun. His light is everywhere and you're experiencing him in his fullness and his glory. That's the treasure in heaven. This young man is being promised. So just give up your stuff and come and follow me. And that's what God is calling you to today. There is no idol in your life. I promise you there is no idol in your life that can even compare to the glory of God. 
So as we sing our two songs at the end of the service, I'm so glad we get to do that now. That is my challenge to you. That you would remember that the treasure in heaven is a person and that it is Jesus and that you would take a moment and reflect and ask the Lord to reveal to you, Lord, are there any idols that I need to get rid of? What are my possessions that are great? God, I don't want to turn away disheartened and sorrowful. I want to return with joy. I want to be like that guy with the joy in him who went and sold all that he had. What is God calling you to lay down at his feet this morning that you might have treasure in heaven in the fullness of joy? Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you for everything you give us. Oh, there is so much. Good gifts are so abundant because what that psalmist said is so true. God, you have dealt bountifully with me. In the midst of every trial and every difficulty in my life, I know it's true. You have dealt bountifully with me. And it doesn't feel like that in the moment, God. But help us trust in your steadfast love. Help us rejoice in our salvation. Help us sing with joy to the Lord, even in the midst of difficulty. When we're burnt out, when we're tired, when we're frustrated, when we want to cry out, how long, O Lord? May we run to you. And God, I pray that you would help us remove every idol, everything that is in between us and you, Lord Jesus. I pray that you, in your goodness and your kindness, would help us lay it all down and lose just such little things so that we might gain everything. That we might know the surpassing power to know Jesus and him crucified. I ask this in your name. Amen.